Welcome to the Ready Yeti Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. Hey guys, before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Ready Yeti membership. We've grown to have thousands of products from some amazing up-and-coming brands. Anything from skis and snowboards, jackets, hiking boots, even supplements and snack bars. It's an incredible way to save a ton on gear with discounts of up to 50% off. Join the Ready Yeti membership and do your part to help support some of these incredible small businesses that aren't just making incredible gear, but are also putting a lot of effort into social action and doing their part to create an environmentally conscious business. Join today at www.readyyeti.com members and start supporting these amazing startups and saving a ton on gear. This podcast episode was originally recorded on September 29th, 2017. Since Gilson Snow is part of our current ski and snowboard giveaway, we wanted to bring this episode back from the archives. We've cleaned up the audio a bit and hope that you enjoyed this episode with founder Nick Gilson talking about his journey in building Gilson Snow. What is going on, Ready Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, your host. And on today's episode, I'm sitting down with the co-founder of Gilson Snowboards, Nick Gilson. Nick, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Well, thank you guys for uh, making the trip out to the snowboard and ski farm. It's good to have you here. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's awesome to be hanging out in a tiny home while we're doing this episode. Yeah, this is Nate Henson's <laughs> house. We actually, he just joined the team full time. He's from Colorado and sold his house and bought a tiny house and did some work to it himself. And him and his wife and his kiddo just actually moved out to uh, the snowboard and ski farm from Colorado. Yeah, no, it's a really awesome setup. I'm so, so jealous of all the space you guys have out here, especially living in the city. It's nice to get out here. Um, But really to start things off for the listener that may not be familiar with Gilson, I'd love for you to sort of walk us through uh, your, your story and how you guys are different in the ski and snowboard world. Yeah, great question. It's really pretty simple. We started this company um, to design skis and snowboards with fluid dynamics in mind. And so basically, if you think about any object that moves through a fluid, whether it's a boat, a car, a plane, you know, air is a fluid, water is a fluid. Right. Um, and H2O snow is not so different, or H2O, H2O snow, H2O yeah. solid is not yeah. so different from, um, from H2O liquid. And, uh, and so we've basically been able to adapt these physical principles that um, have been explored in other industries to snow. And of course, they look a little bit different when we're dealing with a solid. But at speed, snow really does behave like a liquid and like a fluid and, and certainly powder. And so by designing the three dimensions with fluid dynamics in mind, we've been able to build skis and snowboards that are fundamentally different feeling and many would agree, way more fun to ride. Yeah, I'll, I'll say, walking through your facility, it's like, just as someone who's built skis before, it's just like walking through a candy store. <laughs> I'm lucky to be surrounded by some insanely talented people yeah. who uh, bring a lot to the table in terms of engineering. And, you know, it's amazing what you can come up with after a couple beers. Oh, definitely, definitely. <laughs> um, so how did, how did you get this start? What did you, were you, did you grow up a snowboarder? Did you always know that you wanted to be working with your hands in manufacturing? 
Yeah, great question. I grew up um, surfing and snowboarding and skateboarding and also skiing. Um, I skied for 13 years before my mother let me get on a <laughs> snowboard for the first time. Um, and then something clicked. You know, I think some people are kind of righties and some people are lefties. And as much as I love to ski, I, you know, snowboarding definitely feels a lot more comfortable for me. Um, right. But mutual respect for all the wonderful skiers <laughs> out there because, man, it's not as easy for me. Yeah. Um, but but we you know we and I'm lucky to work with some insane skiers who you know who help develop these concepts and so it is fun to design skis as well. Um, but yeah, you know it's uh, it's uh, it's a good time. Yeah, definitely. So you you went to Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you study there? Uh, actually, uh, Earth and Planetary Sciences. Okay. So, Predominantly focused. I was really interested in the space sciences, um, and uh, and and physics is really my jam. That's what really gets me going. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. So then you, after school, what happened? Yeah. So after Hopkins, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, uh, to teach middle school science. And you know, my <laughs> friends at Hopkins that were all you know orgo and biomedical engineering and all this stuff used to make fun of me for <laughs> majoring in earth and planetary sciences you say what are you going to use this for yeah and i didn't really have a good answer at the time other than you know i'm like i'm studying what i really really am interested in uh but turns out middle school science is you know i basically went to college for that yeah, <laughs> so yeah. when i went to write a curriculum in tennessee <laughs> um you know, it was very much by the seat of my pants and but at least the content was was you know on the back of my hand of course so uh, you graduate school, then you, you start teaching. So how did you go from teaching to then starting the fastest growing snowboard company? <laughs> uh, good question. So actually the students played a pretty big role in that. Um, I was the fifth and sixth grade science teacher and about November of my first year, a guy named Austin Royer was hired to be the seventh and eighth grade science teacher. Mm-hmm. And so we started collaborating together to develop these lesson plans. And, you know, we the first real challenge we ran into is that there was such an amazing diversity of talent and um, and, uh, and 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 previous education, I should really say, right? right? And right. so in one seat, you've got uh, a student who is reading right on par at a sixth grade level. Next seat over, you've got someone reading on a kindergarten level. Next seat over, someone's asking me, you know, advanced math questions. Yeah. Next seat over, someone's learning English for the first time. <laughs> and you know, next seat over, we've got you know, Abdul Basadu is asking me theoretical physics questions about <laughs> objects entering black holes from different reference frames. He was just like, oh my god, you know, how do you read <laughs> How do you teach one lesson to reach all of these kids? It's, yeah. um, it's not easy. And so what Austin and I ultimately ended up doing was writing our curriculums around not not the sort of like root memorization, flashcard style, right. regurgitate information on a standardized test with four multiple choice questions, but instead around hands-on learning. And mm-hmm. what we figured is that if we could teach the skills and mindsets needed to figure out a problem, then we could skip teaching the actual answer. Right. And um, yeah, I mean, we were, we were, I mean, it was such an amazing experience. We were both working over 100 hours a week and just like completely wow. invested. And, and, and at one point we um, had this idea to start year-long projects and mm-hmm. where the students would be uh, pursuing their own topic of interest, whatever they wanted. And we decided in an act of solidarity to do that ourselves. And so we brought in the first prototype that I had built when I was actually my student's age, when I was 14, oh, wow. out of uh, two pieces of plywood, first three-dimensional concepts. <laughs> I was biased. I wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> so don't take my word for it. I don't, I don't think it actually worked, but I yeah, can tell yeah. you it did. <laughs> yeah. That's fun. Um, but yeah, and so throughout that year, 
we we faced several failures before we ended up actually starting the company and uh and and throughout that process we sort of inadvertently showed the students what it looks like to completely fail and pick yourself back up again and um, ultimately those kids went from 18 percent proficiency to 89 percent proficiency went from an unranked science program to one of the top four in the district and our lesson plans are actually still taught to this day wow it's pretty impressive. Uh, I mean, we we cared about these kids, man. We were, we were working hard, and um, it was definitely stuff that we were passionate about. And we were very fortunate to have each other. Yeah. You know, Austin and I, to this day, work very well together. That's incredible. I think you touch on a few good things. Finding a good business partner uh, that really complements mm-hmm. you, which, I, like, obviously you guys do. And having that sort of environment where you work in a school and you go from bottom rank to top four, that's that's crazy. That's must have been a roller coaster of a ride. No, it seriously was. And Austin, Austin and I do compliment each other well. I'm sort of like the eternal optimist. Yeah. I have like, you know, I need to be tempered by a realist. Austin is in no way a pessimist. Austin's yeah. in, incredibly optimistic about the future and what we're up to. But at the same time, you know, he asked like, like, well, how are you going to pay for that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. I totally get that. It's it's a strong dynamic, but it's totally necessary. Okay, so. You um, successfully um, increased the ranking of the school, right? And you obviously realized you're, you're, you're great at teaching and um, doing everything that you did. So how did that, and you started working on Gilson, I guess, as a project. To yeah, with, with the, the students, kids. exactly. They were developing the prototypes with us. Okay, so then uh, you're in Nashville. Then what's, what's next? What happened after that? Yeah, so we built the first six prototypes in Nashville. Um, we had turned the basement crawl space into a rudimentary workshop. <laughs> And built our first press, and, uh, and and that blew up after the first six prototypes. That kind of halted the production. <laughs> but we got out, we got the boards out that we needed to, and and test those concepts. And although the first two were complete and utter failures over the Christmas break trip, because mind you, we were doing our testing in Colorado oh, in yeah. sync with school breaks. Right? Oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And so the the Christmas break trip was a total failure. <laughs> and, but by March break, we had three prototypes that were actually, um, you know, they looked like garbage. Aesthetically, they weren't yeah, great. Yeah, of course. Construction-wise, I'm sure they were falling apart. You know, they're <laughs> on the wall now. Um, and... Uh, but but from a performance standpoint, they they had first they, they're the first boards that had the soft edge, and they had started to show that maybe there was some real potential in in designing in three dimensions with fluid dynamics in mind. Of course, okay. So the soft edge, and for the listener that may not be familiar with the technology, could you sort of explain exactly how how it works? Yeah, great question. So basically, your average um, or typical historical snowboarder or pair of skis is flat edge to edge across the ski. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there's curvature lengthwise where the tip and tail curve up but across the ski it's totally flat Mm -hmm. and across the snowboard is totally flat what we've been able to do is by putting a a bend in that base plastic and curving the base up to meet the steel we've been able to develop a shape that allows you to drift on the snow and float and surf and pump and and really have that very fluid motion i mean imagine in moguls instead of like cut cut yeah you can like float and pump and and move laterally with your skis or board um, and so that motion is you know very much like surfing on a wave you can actually slip sideways you know you can drift sideways right. on a surfboard and then you can edge in and carve when you want to 
And so basically we've allowed, the soft edge allows for that motion. And, and then when you want your steel edge, you just lean past that 12 degree mark. And at 12 degrees, your steel actually touches the snow, engages, you have a high angle of attack and it pulls you into a traditional snowboard carve. And that, you know, then the other benefit is for those who ride the park and oh, of know, course. I can't claim that I still do. <laughs> it's, you know, I'm, I'm, getting old. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming up on 30 here in yeah. a couple of years and, you know, it's starting to really hurt when I fall, um, especially on a rail. Oh yeah. Um, but I, I definitely follow these guys, you know, occasionally, but the, uh, the, the soft edge actually lifts your steel up off the feature. Nice, and so yeah. you can keep a super sharp steel edge that will never hang up. Mm. But, uh, but then when you do engage it on your way to the park or when you're using your board to cruise the mountain, you have, uh, you know, a, a, a very uh, supportive, effective edge that, that still won't hang up on a rail. I mean, people are board sliding on, on trees and bark and what? still not hanging up. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. So obviously you guys have a lot of patents and what you're doing is very revolutionary in the snow sports industry, right? So how, how did you go from that first project uh, when you were 14 to what you guys are doing now where you're clearly uh, offering one of the most unique lines out there? Um, great question. It was an idea that, that after it surfaced when I was a kiddo, my dad actually was building, the original idea came because my dad, um, after work, you know, loved to, you know, he loves to work with his hands. And so he, at the time he was building a catamaran sailboat okay. and he was paying such attention to the curvature of each hull because this thing's moving through water, right? And so he's thinking about how this boat's going to, to be moving through a fluid right. and, and it really begged the question, why aren't we asking the same questions in, in skiing and snowboarding when mm -hmm. H2O solid is really very similar in physical principles to H2O liquid? Um, and so that's really the origin of the idea. And, and the irony is, is I was in middle school at the time, and then I went to high school, tried to build more prototypes, went to college, built a prototype in my dorm room, and <laughs> wasn't exactly supposed to be using epoxy and fiberglass <laughs> on campus. And, and, then, um, and, and then, you know, it took me from, you know, Attempting this in middle school, I had to go to high school and then college, and I had to actually return to middle school this time as a teacher to be able to realize <laughs> the idea. Uh, but at that stage, after we had seen these initial successes in the design, um, you know, we, we had built those prototypes actually were accelerating 26% faster than the standard nice. snowboard, which is absurd. And we don't talk about it because yeah. it didn't take as long to learn. No one cares. You can already go uncomfortably <laughs> fast on skis and snowboards. This is true. And so, <laughs> and so uh, we, we pivoted though. And what, but what we had what we'd proven quantitatively is that by adjusting the the shape and by paying attention to the geometry and by designing three dimensions, mm -hmm. we could fundamentally change a board's performance and characteristics. That's fascinating. And so we shifted from speed to building boards and skis that are just more fun to ride. Yeah, and one of the other aspects, I know we talked about this when we were in the shop, is, is because of the shape, the boards are actually lighter, right? So the skis are absolutely skis are, okay. lighter. The boards are, um, we're getting, we've been shaving weight uh, we so one of the issues that we dealt with in maybe like year two of the company is that these boards had um, less total area on top with the top profile, but we were adding material on the bottom to, mm -hmm. to take up to create that three dimensional shape. In years since, we've been able to shave down on the poplar core, deliver the same performance characteristics, the same strength, the same response. And that three-dimensional shape on the bottom, because that base layer of fiberglass actually travels over that curvature, it's substantially stronger. Just like the ridges on a tin roof or the corrugations in cardboard or the flange on an I-beam, mm -hmm. the board is made substantially stronger by its geometry. And that also means when you bend it, it stores way more, it stores way more potential energy for pop. Right. So, right. and now we're at the point where we're comparably 
I think weighted in terms of our boards. Um, they're incredibly durable, and and, <laughs> and and also you know because of that that geometry. That was actually an accident of engineering, believe it or not. We uh, interesting didn't mean to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. a side benefit. But the skis, man, the skis. Um, Man, those things are light. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to get on them. So that, that's something that, as a listener, you may not be aware of, but Gilson's just breaking into the ski industry. You guys obviously have been in the snowboard industry since 2013, but in the next uh, couple of weeks or so? Yeah, on September 22nd at 4.02 p.m., and we're getting a lot of questions, why such a specific time? And we're not telling anybody the answer or letting people figure it out. A couple <laughs> people have figured it out, but I'll tell you guys, it's um, it's technically the last second of summer. It's the equinox. Oh, and that's so awesome. we're releasing our skis then. Uh, and uh, and and there's a lot of hype out there for them. We're releasing a thousand production spots, and we're making 999 of them available for purchase. And the first pair, we're gonna have the whole team sign as the very first production pair to leave our facility, and we're giving them away to a member in our community. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, and you got you can sign up on gilsonsnow.com and just click the skis button. I'll take you to the right page. That is awesome. Okay, so you you've built this, you built Gilson into this obvious like innovator in the outdoor industry and you, you've got a team of, of 21 people now and being able to walk around your facilities and sort of the community, I, Matt and I noticed that you have a really strong community aspect and I wanted to ask you, what did you have that vision to begin with? Did you always know how you wanted to build it and how, how did you get it from where it was just you and that idea in the classroom to now 21 people all believing in, and bought into the same mission? Yeah, no, I'm very lucky to be surrounded by extraordinary people. There's no way we'd be here without them. Uh, you know, it's really, an, I think, an organic thing. Um, you know, if you if you try purposefully to build the right, you do need to try purposely to build the right culture, right? You absolutely do. But it, you know, if you're, <laughs> there's some businesses that you start with the outside and then build in, right. and there are other businesses that you start on the inside and you build out. Mm -hmm. And and outside in is when you're, uh, you know, graduating from Harvard and you and your four other MBA friends, and you know, I've got good friends who did this, right? Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, knocking it at yeah, all. Course, it's a great way to start a business, and it's honestly probably a much more intelligent way to start <laughs> a business. Uh, but these guys, you know, crunch the numbers, and girls crunch the numbers, and they, um, and and they find an opportunity, and then they create a company to capitalize on that opportunity and make money and then they build the insides of the business and then they try and create a culture strategically right. um, our story is a little bit different in that this dates back to when I was 14 it dates back to the classroom it dates back to the first team of six people moving into the woods after we left teaching full-time and setting up hammocks between trees and moving into a cabin with no running water or electricity and um, and sort of having this shared North Star, this shared vision of bringing boards and skis to market that are this much more fun to ride. Yeah. And because of that, there was just this amazing culture that was started there. We didn't have anything. You know, we didn't have money. We didn't have uh, resources. You know, we we were we you know we we were we were we were very scrappy for how we even got food to feed the team. You know, and we had rent-free manufacturing. We started building our first uh, call it you know quote unquote manufacturing. We, <laughs> built our first shop in a donkey stable that wasn't retired. It still had active donkeys and horses <laughs> in it. And so our first CNC robot was there in a donkey stable with an actual donkey next to it. And, you know, as, as you know, from, from building your, from building your skis, one yeah. of the most important things in, in ski and snowboard production and high comp, you know, snowboards and skis are like a sandwich. It's, it's a lamination process. And one of the most important things is cleanliness. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if I need to share more details about the donkey stable, but yeah, I know, it, right? it wasn't clean. 
mean? You know, <laughs> it processes stacked on top of each other, and we did that for about a year. We um, we we planned for zero sales. We we had built our first process in this stable, and we're hiking out each day from this cabin. We bought an Airstream um, from 1976 and remodeled it <laughs> a little bit, and bought a Ram truck with 200 or no 100. Yeah, 217,000 miles on it or something ridiculous and hooked it up to the trailer and traveled, I think, 18,000 miles that winter going as far east as Maine, as far west as California with no sales plan, initial team, basically just letting people try the boards for free. At this time, there weren't even graphics, you know, (laughs) these things were were still working out the manufacturing. So how did you build the the business? So obviously the manufacturing, we've talked a lot about the manufacturing and and the product, but and you, you drove across the country letting people test the boards, but is that is that simply what you did to build awareness and, and gain customer follow, like cu- customers, basically? Yeah. Yeah, great question. You know, it's, it's funny you say, it, like, the, even to this day, like, the word customers kind of, like, makes me shiver because, yeah. like, I'm, I'm just, you know, the, the thought of being, like, a hard and fast, like, businessman or salesman still, yeah. like, really doesn't sit well with me, and, and I try hard not to, not to ever, like, be or feel like that or act like that. Or, yeah. And so, so, uh, you know, I, we have an amazing community now and, and we love building boards and skis for these folks. And, um, you know, the great thing is that we still have zero salespeople in the company. <laughs> uh, n- none of us here have ever had a marketing or sales job before. That's awesome. But what we've what we've learned how to do is, uh, you know, the world right now is in a state of an accelerating rate of change. And so there are so many more um ways to 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 reach people these mm-hmm. days that just didn't exist when right. you know some of our competitors were building their businesses and you know one of the really interesting things that happened is that we tried to go the traditional route we got rejected by over 3000 retailers in our first 18 months of trying to run this company and and take these uh, these new ideas to market you know they told us we were too weird we were too different I, <laughs> They, yeah, and a lot, a lot worse things in that too. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not bitter or resentful, but I definitely haven't forgotten. Yeah. You, know? Um, you know, things like, you know, you guys will be dead and gone by the time your warranty runs out. You know, have fun building boards in you know daddy's garage. You know, yeah, of course, yeah. we weren't in it. Yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. Right. Um, but uh, but now the interesting thing that's happened is you know that forced our hand. Right, we were going to die. We were and and had we been starting this company. 20 years ago, we would have died. Yeah. Um, but with the new tools and resources available, we developed a new packaging method that allowed us to substantially reduce the cost of shipping direct to skiers and snowboarders. And we started building a community directly and connecting with people. And what that means now is that we go from locally grown trees here um, near our facility to ongoing customer um, and community relationships globally. Right. And what and so and, and everything in between, right? And so we completely, um, we completely, uh, you know, own our whole process, and that's allowed us to invest a ton more money in our raw materials and invest a ton more money in um, in uh, in our build practices, and to do it on American soil, paying American wages. And um, lastly, it's it's allowed us to connect directly with our community. You know, to use this forbidden word, customers. Like our customers are not uh, other businesses. They're right. not retailers. They're not distributors. They're not wholesalers. You know, those are the folks that rejected us. Are you know the folks that we do business with are skiers and snowboarders. And so when when someone calls the company, you know, it's 
I'm going to answer the phone or Danny is or Austin or Steve or someone and we're going to get to actually engage with someone who's as passionate about this sport as we are and that really keeps us going and the amount of like, I, you know, the quintessential word is stoke right the yeah. amount of stoke out there right now is you know reading 11 stoke level 11 <laughs> yeah. and it's so fun for us to be able to connect with people and talk about their experiences and the new things that they're doing with this equipment that we hadn't even thought of yeah, it's funny. Like when we were when we were laying up. So uh, we're we're actually going to be giving away a Gilson Ready Eddy collaboration board, which we're really stoked about. Matt and I actually had the opportunity to lay it up and put it together. And I saw your reaction to the layup table and like the innovations that the team made to it. And I thought that was so funny because it's just like, yeah, when you're laying up twelve boards a day for however many days, you're going to come up with these innovations. Yeah. And just how like stoked everyone is about like, oh, that's awesome. I love the way that makes this so much easier. Just like the passion behind it, I think it's. It's, uh, it's unique and so, so important when you're building a business that specifically relates to a product like skis and snowboards where it's like you're, you're building something quality that's unique that someone's going to be using constantly for their favorite activity. And like you want to make sure that whatever it is that you're delivering to them helps them have the best time on the mountain. Dude, you're 100% right. And you're really tapping into something that's that's pretty core to the culture here. And, um, and that is that... You know, we, we really believe that you have to enjoy work to have it be worth doing. Yeah. And so, you know, and I think gone, and I think this is just good timing for us as well. I think gone are the days of, you know, doing 10,000 unit runs of, mm -hmm. you know, one person popping the head on a doll 10,000 times before <laughs> lunch, right? And like yeah. just being miserable and having these factory jobs. And so the folks that, uh, you know, that, that we, that, that the craftsmen really that build the boards and skis here are all trained across the whole facility. So they'll never do a whole day of the same thing. They'll actually follow a board through production many times too, and be cross-trained on all of these different processes. And so it really builds this connection between the person building the board, right. and much like a surfer um, shaping their surfboard and then going and riding it, you know, this person is actually crafting something, not mm -hmm. just doing a repetitive step. And then these folks go out and do demos and, yeah. and meet the people that they're building for. And it just gives so much satisfaction in, in the workplace to just see how, like the, the things that you're tangibly doing, to see that come to fruition and really make someone's day or make someone's winter is, um, is a really meaningful thing. And, uh, and so, and so, you know, that, that's, that's important to us. You gotta, you gotta care about your work and you've got to, you know, come into the workplace with um you know an eagerness to be there for it really you know i think to for it to even be worth showing up i couldn't agree more so i wanted to ask you why why pennsylvania why why do you guys serendipity man <laughs> yeah <laughs> serendipity so uh we, I, I get asked this question a lot because it's an atypical place for a yeah, snowboard company definitely. based and so uh you know a couple of interesting things we were planning when we were teachers in nashville to you know go to the stereotypical headquarters you know colorado mm -hmm. um but we looked at our bank accounts and we we're like, well, we can either afford rent for a couple of months or we can afford our first machine. You know, that's a no brainer. Yeah. And so we ended up in, in rent free manufacturing is stable. And we figured at that point that we would, um, as soon as we, our finances were in line, that we'd be moving to Colorado. But the way that the folks in this community rallied behind us was a totally inspiring thing. Um, for example, we, we fabricate a lot of our own machinery mm -hmm. and welders are typically 160 to $200 an hour that we certainly didn't have in our first year, but we needed to weld presses. And these are really high pressure machines we were designing and we didn't want to trust ourselves to the HVAC work and the welding, right? And, and now we have 
you know, world-class welders on staff, but at the time we certainly didn't. And so um, Larry, uh, who lives a couple of houses down, happened to be the uh, head of maintenance for Wood Mode, which is like a 2,000 plus person manufacturing facility. Yeah. And he was in charge of maintenance and repair for these just massive machines that make cabinets. And so he had two knee replacements around that time and he heats his house on firewood that he cuts himself. And after his knee replacements, he couldn't foot cut his fire. Right. So he said, hey, Larry, you, know, <laughs> you want to weld our presses and we'll bring six strapping dudes over and, you know, cut your winter's worth of firewood? Yeah. It's like, yeah, man, deal. Yeah. And so that's how we started welding up our original presses. And, you know, that's just the type of thing that you really only see um, in, in certain parts of America and, of and definitely not in downtown urban metropolises. You know? yeah. <laughs> and, uh, that sort of barter economy thing. Of you know, our CPAs these days have something to say about it. You know, our accountants don't love the butter economy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, and then, you know, the, this community has just been so incredibly supportive. There are a million stories like that. And then the other really interesting thing that happened is even with our um, design innovations in Colorado, we would be a dime a dozen. There are yeah. so many flash in the pan ski and snowboard companies that try and start up and fizzle. Uh, whereas in Pennsylvania, man, like, we were we were newsworthy. Like we were newsworthy <laughs> early. Like, yeah. like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. <laughs> and so we got the local news going, which then sort of gave that initial buzz. And within yeah. the year, we got our first national news. And you know, now we've had a couple of global publications in the last couple of years that have been huge. That I, I really am not sure we would have gotten without that initial kick in the butt from the local press in Pennsylvania. You know, it's funny because the first time I found you guys, I don't know, maybe a year or two ago, and I I looked at where you you guys were based and I like took a double take I'm like really like yeah <laughs> and I'm like oh like okay right and it's it's funny because like something like that can be such a big part of of the success and mm -hmm. the environment and the culture like you're saying so you know people ask us like how we hire too and now we get a lot of applications and you know every week and uh, I really only have one answer and it's we we don't headhunt we don't you know look at resumes really like we hire by serendipity right and the, the, each person on this team has a ridiculous story if <laughs> 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 you get a chance you just ask Danny he was at he was uh, he was working at Mount Shasta okay uh, when we met him and uh, the, I, he can tell you the full story but the long and short of it was is that the owners of the mountain invited us after demo days to stay for a drink or two. We were a very young company. Danny yeah. must have thought that we were much more along the way than we actually were at the time. <laughs> so we went up to our riders and said, you know, how how did you get this job? This is like the job that I've always wanted. He said, you know, it happens that a couple of the owners are actually here. Like you should go talk to them. And so he comes over and and he says, you know, how like how did you get into this line of work? Like what does it take? You know, I just want to pick your brain. And I said we needed bodies. <laughs> we were a very young company. So yeah, yeah. I looked at Danny, who you know I had just met, basically. I said, we have this Airstream trailer. We're headed to Mammoth. What are you doing for a week? <laughs> and he said, well, I have this dog. And I said, we've been thinking about getting a dog. What kind of dog? Is he friendly? He said, yeah, it's Border Collie. Now this is Ollie, who's like the team mascot. <laughs> Danny comes to Mammoth for a week. He tells his roommates he's leaving for just a week. He came back like six months later to oh get his God. stuff and, and, and move out of awesome. his apartment. Yeah, he, had a, he went to Mammoth and then we went to Colorado and the rest of tour. And uh, and Danny's been here ever since. And that, now incredible. he heads up, a, he's an owner in the company and heads up a huge 
huge part of um, our, our our sort of community relations side of the company. Right. That's so that's so funny how it just sort of works out like that. Um, so in this entire journey, have you had any like key mentors that have helped you get to where you are now? Oh yeah, no question, absolutely. Um, so many. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Look, I, I'm the first one to, and so it's amazing when you when you let down your guard mm. and you ask for help. It's amazing the flood of response that you get from even really exceptionally talented people. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, um, you know, we put up this, you know, it's very important, like as, as a young entrepreneur to pretend like you know what you're doing. Oh, of course. Yeah. And to yeah. like say that you know what you're doing and to, you know, especially if you have to go out and raise money, yeah, like you really have to, you have to put on an it's, act. It's kind of fake until you make it. And there's <laughs> something really disarming about yeah. saying, I know this, I know that, and I have no clue about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah. And and based on those thoughts, what do you think about this idea? And if we work together on this, like how do you think that would play out? And if we can do it over a couple of beers, even better. Everybody's having fun. And, you know, we, we have the benefit of having a business that's really fun to work on. So, you know, w- w- people who have super intense jobs during the week, uh, you know, CEOs of other companies or right. whatever, right? Like if they can chat about this on a Thursday evening or over beers on a Saturday and think about... Skis and snowboards. I mean, at the end of the day, even if it's taxes, it's taxes about (laughs) skis and snowboards, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, It's fun stuff. And so we've, um, by just asking and by letting down our guard and being disarming and saying, we don't know something, can you help us here? We've attracted the talent of some truly exceptional people, including Brian Goldner, who's the CEO of Hasbro and executive producer of Transformers, and (laughs) Joe Calloway, who, you know, is an advisor to Cadillac and American Express, and you name it. And so, you know, that's not where we started. We've worked our way up, and these people have taken interest as we've gone. And these are great folks in the community. Karen Hammond, who is the former... she was very high up on the treasury side of Fidelity, and what? you know these folks. You know these folks are. And I'm, I'm only naming like a couple. You know, yeah, Stephen Presser who started Modern White Capital. Like these guys are and girls are really just extraordinary people in their fields, and it's amazing how um, these connections expand. And if you are earnest and you're passionate about your work and you're in it for the right reasons, yeah. um, and and you admit what you don't know, it's amazing the help and mentorship you can receive. Oh, definitely. So along along this journey, what would you say have been some of the biggest mistakes that you've made (laughs) (laughs) um great question um (laughs) i mean i can think of a couple of like just like manufacturing process engineering mistakes Uh, you know there's an aesthetic issue at one point of epoxy getting on our bases and i had an idea to um to put a, a protective layer of material on there and it's the first lesson and you know when you screw something up and and you're actually go you're moving as a business this problem gets replicated pretty quickly oh yeah and you can you can solve one problem the boards looked great but this adhesive residue is actually sticking onto the boards oh. and so when we shipped out these you know boards that we built over the course of a month before we had the caught the first problem um these boards were sticking to the snow like velcro Oh, and like these, there's one job for yeah. skis and snowboards yeah, you know, to slide yeah, and yeah. not stick. Yeah, and so we had a we had a you know this, these boards. You know, we don't really do production runs because we build for skiers and riders, not for shelves. Right. Um, but these folks who had ordered boards from us were were writing back saying they were sticky. And you know the, the interesting thing though too is um, some of our most loyal folks in the community are the ones that we screwed something up with and then had the opportunity to fix it. You know, it's funny. 
Yeah, like we we've had that with Ready Yeti, where like um, like with our membership program, like beta, there's a lot of things that go wrong, and like members would reach out and be like, hey, like this isn't working for me, and like as soon as we reply, we're very hands on with helping them solve their problem, and then that, they just want to be heard and helped and yep. like cared about, and once that happened, they're like our biggest fans. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, we we were we were devastated by that. I mean, I lost a lot of sleep over that. Um, but and and we, and we we had to figure out how to. It turned out we didn't need to replace the boards; they just needed to be tuned and then rewaxed. Okay, um, well, that's lucky. Yeah, yeah, we were we were fortunate. So we of course, but then we also have a three dimensional base, which a lot of tuners out there at this time weren't really used to. And now any tuner worth their chop sees this stuff and, and sees our boards and skis and they're like, I got this. Like okay. I've heard about gills and like yeah, I can do this. And yeah. if they haven't done it before, they're they excited be- to try. Yeah. And if they have done it before, then they know that they can do it. Um, but at this time, we had a lot of tuners saying, like, yeah, you know, fun boards, but you can't tune them, yeah. which is just not true, right? And so and so we had to coach a lot of tuners across the country through tuning a very new set of designs over the phone. Mm. And I remember getting a phone call um, last year at one point. This was a couple years ago. But last <laughs> year, this on a related topic, um, last year we had uh, a, a guy called up on the company phone and I happened to answer it. And he said, hey, you know, I'm working in a tune shop here. And he sounded a little bit frustrated. <laughs> like, like, there's a ton of your boards <laughs> stacking up here. And like, none of us know what to do. Like, what's the problem, man? Like, why do you, like, why do you design boards like this? <laughs> And so like I'm kind of like like laughing about it. I was like, yeah, hey, yeah. But, you know, we'll take some videos in our tune shop right now. We'll get them over to you so you can get these boards tuned up and back out to to your community like yeah, as yeah, fast yeah. as possible. So what's your email address? And he gave me a series of numbers at rei.com. What? <laughs> I was like, oh shoot, there's like you know a ton of snowboards stacked up in REI's centralized <laughs> tune shop, and they're like, what the hell do we do? With these yeah. things? <laughs> That's so funny. That's awesome. Okay, so um, I wanted to ask you in in terms of, of Gilson, what are your biggest fears? Like, what what keeps you up at night? Like you were saying before, um, in regards to the business. So I sleep pretty well these days. That's um, good. Which is nice. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I definitely work very hard, but I, I do sleep well. You know, I think one of the biggest early stressors is uncertainty, um, both in yourself, in your team, in just the variables you can't control, and you know, ideally you can compartmentalize and externalize the stuff you can't control and only focus on the stuff you can. Um, but now, honestly, as a result of the extraordinarily talented people I'm surrounded by, you know, I. Like we got this, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, we got this, and and uh, you know of course there are many variables ahead. It doesn't matter who you are; you're always a phone call away. Of course, you have no idea. Um, you know, I, I think if I if I really back it out, not to get too serious here, but it is obviously a, a hugely important thing that we're facing uh, just globally as a species. You know, weather patterns are changing, um, and regardless of your feelings on human driven climate change it's changing. right not to get politicized here yeah. right but like it, it is changing um and you know obviously all the evidence suggests the, the root cause um, <laughs> but uh, and and you know I, I don't think it's too late if if we act now but there's um there, there's there's more than enough evidence to suggest that that you know our winters aren't disappearing but they're in some ways relocating mm-hmm. and it's much less predictable and you know that's a scary thing and, and not for this business you know this business is important pales in comparison to 
right? Like the world, humanity, yeah. and, 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 and weather patterns and all the rest of it. But right. um, you know, obviously, we see it quite poignantly because of our role in winter sports and the warming climate and glaciers receding and all the rest of it. And so, you know, uh, if anything keeps me up at night, that's what it is. Definitely, I totally understand that. So. What's in store for the future with Gilson in the next year, five years, 10 years down the road, if you've thought about it? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, we have a lot of stuff in the pipeline and uh, that I'm really excited about. You know, we're, we're total nerds for design. And so <laughs> you know, that is part of what's really fun for us of about course. this is the actual design and innovation. Um, you know, from a higher level perspective, from 50,000 feet, like if five, 10 years from now, there's a lot of different paths we could take that would make me incredibly happy. Um, but you know the the overarching criteria is that so long as our people are are, are happy and doing the right things for the right reasons mm-hmm. and engaging with our community in a really positive way and continuing to build uh, meaningful products and meaningful relationships, man, I'm going to be so happy. Oh, I totally get that. So, what's the best part about running Gilson? Um, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, you know. Uh, I don't know if I could narrow it down. I think I think for me what it's got to be is that, you know, as a 14-year-old kid, this is what I looked forward to doing when I got home from school. This is what, you know, as a 14-year-old kid, I was waking up at 6 in the morning to glue planks into you know, hollow wooden surfboards and build <laughs> yeah. the first prototypes. And so from a design standpoint, like, that, this has been near and dear to my heart for well over a decade now. And so to see this come to fruition is really wild. And then, you know, I think the most inspiring thing is to engage with people in our community around the world and see what they've now done with these designs and what doors it's opened for them. And then just to hear how meaningful that experience has been, both from just like a riding standpoint, Mm -hmm. um, but then also from to hear their experiences engaging with people on our team and just how positive that's been. Like, man, that that brings tears to my eyes every once in a while, just to hear how people feel about what we're doing and and who our team is and, you know, why we're doing it. So it keeps us grounded and you know, I think uh, there's a lot that I get to do on a daily basis that I enjoy, and uh, but I think if you know if I if I really boil it down to its basics, it's all about the people. Oh, definitely. Being a part of something bigger than yourself is a, it's a great experience, especially being uh, being the captain of the ship. And well, I don't know about that, man. <laughs> well, starting it, there are a lot of hands on this wheel. <laughs> I, I, I trust a lot of people yeah. with with a lot of things, and and so fortunately, you know, I'm a big believer in that. Like I, of course, if I if I can't walk away from if if I walk away from this business for a month for whatever reason, yeah, because a you know. I need to, or B, because you know, family or Whatever. traveling or yeah, anything. Of like, if the business dies because of that, I built this thing wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. So this thing needs to be its own self-sustaining. Um, we really like organism and community, right? Like this Definitely. is uh, this is this is a system that needs to exist separate from me. And so I don't, you know, captain of the ship is. You know, definitely an apt analogy, I think, for a lot of, of business models, especially traditional business models. But we don't really um, have, you know, we have clear chains of decision making because, you know, the only wrong decision is indecision and you just need to keep moving forward direction, man. But um, but uh, in terms of hierarchy and captains and all of that stuff, no, this is a, this is a, this is a team of people that are business partners and great friends and um, and have a shared vision and a common North Star, and we're working together towards that goal. Definitely. So, so uh, yeah, 
I, you know, this business needs to survive even if I get hit by a bus tomorrow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what advice would you give to someone that wanted to start a business, whether it was in the snow sport, outdoor industry, or really just a business in general? Yeah, great question. I mean, from business, just, I mean, forget business, just like life in general. Yeah. I think it's, um, you know, one thing that I've learned to just be consistently true over the last several years is that some of our greatest wins have come out of failure. Of course. And some of our failures have just been tried and true failures, and <laughs> they sting. And, the, you know, the ones that ultimately lead for to success, like, they sting the same way at first. And so it's very hard to differentiate between what is a failure that's going to lead to a success and what's a failure that's a true failure. Um, and I'm not a fan of just like blindly charging forward in the of face of failure. And one of those people said, you know, in the name, you know, face of failure, you know, like I'm not going to be a poster on a wall here, like <laughs> the face of failure, stand up, right. And charge forward. But I think being really, you know, being really calculated and data driven about failure, um, that is the moment when you fail, where you have the opportunity to learn the most. When something goes right, all you can say is don't touch that dial. Um, when something goes wrong, you can begin to figure out why. Mm. And uh, and so, you know, I, I've recognized that, you know, John Lennon said it best, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And failure plays a hu huge, huge, huge role in success. And, you know, there's a great quote, I'm struggling to remember who said it, um, to look it up, but you know, it takes years to become an overnight success. Oh yeah. Right. It's, you know, it's this idea that there's so many failures that lead up to that point. And so perseverance is important. Um, but you have to be perseverant in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny when you, when you see the overnight success stories on the news or whatever, it's just like, they show you the success, but they don't show you the 15 years of miserable failure yeah. and failing until they got to yeah. that point where they were equipped to become successful. Right. Um, uh, yeah. And so, you know, that's the other thing is that you, um, that you have to deal with so much failure and rejection uh, and so many setbacks that if you're not just so unbelievably passionate, it's it's very hard to jump from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. And if you're not jumping from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm, that enthusiasm will wane over time and things will disappear. Yeah. And, uh, you know, businesses tend to level up as fast as their people are leveling up. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think it's, it's extraordinarily important to, um, you know, if you're going to start a business in the way that we did, which is starting with an idea and a vision as opposed to a monetary calculation, of course, right. um, it's very important for that thing to be something that you're really passionate about because, you know, at the end of the day, if someone were to hand me right now a list of all of the challenges or not right now, but if someone, were, if, if I were to go back and hand my past <laughs> self a list of all the challenges that we would confront, yeah. like, do you, you know, I'm not going to tell you if you handled this successfully or not. Do you still want to start this business? Like looking at that list, I would have been crazy to move <laughs> forward, right? I would have been crazy. Um, so, you know, it also takes a little bit of naivete, I suppose. Sometimes it does. Sometimes yeah. it does. Well, um, Nick, I want to thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me. It was really a blast to get to know you check out the facility and meet your team and actually build a board which we're going to be giving away on readyeddy.com if you enter between um um, October 3rd and 31st you can go on enter to win a board that Matt and I actually had the opportunity to lay up and build uh, which we're super stoked we got an awesome collaborative graphic um, so if you want to win that head over to readyeddy.com and check it out but if people want to keep tabs on what you guys are doing going forward where, where's the best place for them to do that yeah, so um, you can engage with us on social media. Uh, is definitely an easy place where we're posting regularly, you know, giving updates on what we're up to. 
and that's Gilson Snow, um, G-I-L-S-O-N-S-N-O-W. And uh, we're also just to reach out directly to company to the company. It's info at gilsonsnow.com, and um, our phone number is five seven zero seven nine eight nine one zero two, and our website's gilsonsnow.com, and Instagram gilsonsnow. It's our handle. So anyway, and uh, you know we don't we don't pay people to do this for us. So if you engage <laughs> if you engage with us on social media or write us an email or give us a phone call, it's going to be one of us uh, writing back or picking up the phone. That's awesome. Well, Nick, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm so excited to see what you guys do going forward and 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 again thanks thank you guys uh for having me on the show and it's a blast to have you here at the snowboard and ski farm thanks for making the trip out without a doubt if you enjoyed today's podcast episode then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to itunes and leave us a quick review this really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself and if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode then please share it along well that wraps up this episode of the ready podcast we'll catch you guys next week